You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Transforming the Soul. This is Volume 1. Translated by Charles Davy and Christian von Arnhem and revised for this edition by Pauline Verla. This is the last lecture in this first volume, Lecture 9, entitled A Few Observations About the Moon in the Light of Spiritual Science, given in Berlin on the 9th of December, 1909. The lecture I am to give today as part of this year's winter cycle puts me in a somewhat more difficult position than did the other lectures. I want to make some remarks that are rather different from the way of thinking now called scientific. And as people's way of thinking is largely formed by the ideas current in scientific circles and in popular science, we may surely say that because the subject matter of today's lecture is so far removed from any such ideas, the public at large will not be much inclined to regard my statements as anything else but mere fancy, seeing them more as daydreaming than as what they really are, the outcome of spiritual scientific research. I would ask you, therefore, to take today's lecture as a sort of episode, intended as an initiative in a certain direction, which will otherwise not receive much mention this winter, though it may be dealt with thoroughly next year. The reason for touching on it now is to show that what we are studying this winter in the way of science of the soul continually points in directions which lead from the immediate realm of the life of the human soul to a context of underlying relationships with the universal existence of the whole cosmos. Finally, I would ask you to consider the fact that one short chapter is being picked out as an example from a very large field, and that therefore the wording of the title must be carefully noted, a few observations about the moon in the light of spiritual science, for what I will be bringing will not exhaust the theme. You can read in all sorts of popular books nowadays statements about the moon from the standpoint of present-day science. But all you can learn from these sources or from scientific literature as such will leave you thoroughly unsatisfied as regards the real questions concerning the remarkable companion of our earth that we call the moon. As the 19th century advanced, decade by decade, the statements made in certain directions by ordinary science regarding the moon became more and more cautious, but also less and less frequent. But reports of this kind will be occupying us hardly at all. The particular picture of the disk of the moon given us by telescopes and astronomic photography and the descriptions of its crater-like formations, grooves, plains and valleys and so on, which comprise its spatial configurations, are not what we shall be concerning ourselves with. The question for us today is a purely spiritual scientific one, whether the moon has any special influence on or significance for life on earth. Whether the moon has a significance of this kind with regard to life on earth has been spoken about from various points of view in the course of past centuries. And as everything that happens on earth year in, year out, is undoubtedly related to the changing position of the earth in relation to the sun, it was natural to wonder whether in addition to the powerful influence of the sun's light and heat and other effects, the other heavenly luminary, the moon, might not have some importance for life on earth, especially for human life. In the comparatively recent past, people were inclined to speak of the moon as having a fairly strong influence on life on earth, quite apart from the fact that it has long been customary to attribute to the moon's attraction, the so-called ebb and flow of the sea, 
the moon has always been regarded as affecting weather conditions on earth. And as late as the first half of the 19th century, scientists and doctors were quite serious about collating observations on the definite effects the moon and its various phases had on certain illnesses and even on the course of human life altogether. At that time it was by no means a mere folk belief or popular superstition to consider the influence of the moon in relation to the ups and downs of fever, asthma, goiter and the like, and there were still doctors and scientists who recorded such cases because they felt compelled to believe that the phases of the moon had an influence both on the course of human life and on health and illness. With the approach of the scientific way of thinking, which clearly had its dawn and its arising in the middle of the 19th century, the inclination to attribute to the moon any significance for human life diminished more and more. The only conviction that survived was that the moon caused the tides of the sea, and scientists became less and less inclined to credit the moon with any influence on weather phenomena, let alone the life of human beings or other aspects of life. And, in particular, there was one very important scientist who was epoch-making in one scientific realm of natural science, Schleiden by name, who became furious if anyone so much as dared to imply the moon had an influence at all, even if it was only on the weather or some other terrestrial phenomenon. Schleiden, who had done outstanding work in his discovery of the significance of the plant cell, launched a vehement attack on another German natural scientist, Gustav Theodor Fechner, notable especially for directing attention to certain subtle or frontier aspects of research. It is about a century ago now that the famous moon dispute was fought out between the illustrious discoverer of the plant cell and Gustav Theodor Fechner, who, in his title Zent Avesta, tried to show that the life of plants is endowed with soul, while in his title Introduction to Aesthetics and in his title Elements of Psychophysics, he achieved a great deal for the more intimate aspects of natural science. It may be better not to discuss this celebrated controversy about the moon without saying a little more about Fechner himself. Gustav Theodor Fechner was an investigator who tried with immense diligence, great caution and precision, to bring together the external facts in various fields of research. But he also used a method one could call the method of analogy in order to show that all phenomena of plant life and not only of human life, are ensouled. Starting with the phenomena of human life as it runs its course, he took similar facts and phenomena as they appear to observation in, let us say, the life of the earth, or of a whole solar system, or of the plant world. When he compared such phenomena with human life, he found one analogy after another and he concluded that in studying human life with its ensoulment and comparing this with other phenomena in which we see similarities, why should we not recognize the other phenomena as being ensouled, in quotes, too? Anyone who stands on the foundation of spiritual science and is used to examining everything related to spiritual life in as strictly a scientific sense as the natural scientist applies to the study of external phenomena, will feel that some of the things that Fechner works out so cleverly are merely an ingenious game. And however stimulating a game of this kind can be in keeping the mind mobile, we must be extremely cautious in dealing with mere analogies. When a stimulating thinker such as Fechner employs this method, his work may be very interesting. But there are people of whom it can justly be said that they would like to solve universal riddles with as little knowledge and as much ease as possible. And if they lean on Fechner and make his methods their own, we must remember that someone who imitates or repeats parrot fashion is not going to call forth in us anything like the same response and satisfaction as the one who was first in his field 
a man whom we recognize as gifted and stimulating, even though we cannot credit him with anything more than this. We have no need to characterize Schleiden any further than by saying that he discovered the significance of the plant cell. Clearly, such a man who felt obliged to direct all his perceptive and cognitive faculties to what is immediately real, that is, to what can be perceived with external instruments, would also be inclined to remain on the level of outer reality and would have little sympathy for analogies or with anything else that Fechner spoke of in his endeavors to show that with the help of analogies, plants are ensouled. For in Schleiden's view, they are made up of single cells, and this fact naturally seemed to him as its discoverer a wonderful thing. So for Schleiden, it was pretty scandalous that with his brilliant model available as a starting point, speculations were being made about far less important things. So Fechner's method of analogies aroused Schleiden's wrath, and in this connection he also touched on the matter of the moon. With reference not only to Fechner, but to all those who clung to the centuries-old tradition of attributing to the moon all sorts of influences on the weather, etc., he said that for these people the moon was like the domestic cat, held responsible for everything that cannot be otherwise explained. Fechner naturally felt picked on, for he was the main target of these attacks. He at once embarked on a piece of work which, whether or not we agree with it, is highly stimulating. For although certain details have largely become outdated, this treatise Fechner wrote in 1856, called quote, Schleiden and the Moon, close quote, is remarkably interesting. He had no need to go into the phenomena of the tides, for this was admitted even by Schleiden. It was the supposed connection of the moon with weather conditions that made the moon, for him, the cat of scientific research. Fechner therefore set out to investigate the very facts that Schleiden had brought against the cat, moon research, and from this material he drew some notable conclusions. Anyone who cares to check his procedure will find that Fechner was an exceptionally cautious person who, in this particular investigation, went to work with a thoroughly scientific approach. His first conclusion from a mass of facts, which I need not repeat for you can read them for yourselves, was that the quantity and frequency of rainfall were in many cases shown to be greater during a waxing than during a waning moon, greater when the moon approached the earth, smaller when it receded. And the proportion of rainfall during a waxing moon to that during a waning moon was 107 to 100. His series of observations did not cover a few years only. Some of them extended over many decades and concerned not a single locality, but many parts of Europe. In order to exclude chance effects, Fechner now assumed that some other condition, excluding the moon, might have produced this proportion of 107 to 100. He then studied whether conditions on the odd and even dates of the moon's phases. For he said that if waning and waxing was not the cause, the odd and even days of the month would produce similar results. But that was not the case. Quite different figures emerged, and the relationship was not constant, but variable, so that here it could be attributed to chance. Fechner himself realized that he had not achieved any world-shattering results, for he had to recognize that the moon had no very great influence on the weather, yet the facts did point to some influence. And he had, as you will have seen, proceeded thoroughly scientifically, taking account only of observations carefully recorded in various places. He did similar research with regard to fever and other bodily phenomena, and here, too, he obtained results that, uh, though insignificant, were not negative, and showed that phenomena that were taken for granted by popular belief certainly responded differently during a waxing or a waning moon. Thus the old view of the moon underwent its last fight in the middle of the nineteenth century in the work of this brilliant man, Fechner. 
This example shows very well how wrong it is to accept the increasingly common assertion that science compels us to talk no more about a spiritual background to things. For science, we are assured, is on the verge of learning how to combine simple materials so as to produce living substance. It is agreed that we have far to go before we can make protein from its constituents, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen, nitrogen, and so on. But the whole tendency of science is such that we have a right to admit that it will be done one day. And when it has been done, the only tenable outlook, so we are told by those who make these assertions, will be a monistic one which holds that a living, thinking being is made up of nothing but an assembly of material elements. Those who talk in this vein will have drawn on the latest aims and achievements of science to convince themselves that we are not justified in postulating something spiritual behind what we perceive with our senses or are told by external science. For happily, they will feel, we are long past the days when it could be claimed that some kind of vague philosophy of life lives behind the sense-perceptible world. At this point we may well ask, is it really science that compels us to reject spiritual research? Is that a scientific conclusion? I want to remain entirely on the ground of those who believe that in the not-too-distant future it will be possible to produce living protein out of simple substances. Is there anything in that which compels us to say that life is materially constituted and that we must not look for a spirit? Ordinary historical observation will show what little force there is behind this argument. There was a time when it was believed not only that carbon, hydrogen, etc. could be used to produce protein, but that a whole human being could be produced in a retort from the necessary materials. The value of this belief need not concern us. You can find a poetical treatment of this in the second part of Faust. The point is that there were times when people really believed, however crazy it may seem to us, that, in quotes, homunculus, could be put together out of separate components. Yet in those times no one doubted that behind the sense-perceptible world was the spirit. Therefore, you can prove historically that no science can compel us to reject the spirit, for this depends on something quite different, on whether or not a capacity to discern the spirit is there. Neither the science of today nor the science of tomorrow can ever compel us to reject the spirit. We can take a perfectly scientific standpoint, but whether or not we reject the spirit does not depend on science. It depends on whether or not we are able to discern the spirit and recognize its existence. So without our agreeing from the spiritual scientific point of view, either with Schleiden or Fechner, we can understand that Schleiden, with his eyes fixed on the sense world, rejected everything that might be sought for behind physical phenomena in the way of soul and spirit. But it was not in scientific, on scientific grounds that he rejected this. He was so inured to looking at what hit him in the eye, E-Y-E, that he had no sympathy for anything spiritual that needed searching for. Fechner was a quite different kettle of fish. His outlook embraced spiritual matters, and though he made one error after another, he was a different kind of person, one who sought the spirit. So his tendency was to clarify rather than reject the significance of the subtler influences of the planetary bodies on one another. He said to himself, when I look at the moon, to me it is not merely the slag heap it appears to be through a telescope. It is ensouled as are all other bodies. Therefore, we can assume that there must be effects passing from the soul of the moon to the soul of the earth, which come to expression below the surface of our ordinary life or weather phenomena. Now, it is noteworthy and has often been pointed out here that the method of spiritual scientific research is directed toward the practical and that the best proofs of what it has to say on the can be found in everyday life. And that is just how Fechner set 
about defending his views. He suggested that the dispute between Schleiden and himself concerning the moon could perhaps be best settled by their wives. He said, quote, We both need rainwater for washing, and it could be collected according to weather conditions. Since Schleiden and I live under the same roof and can collect water at definite times, I suggest that my wife collects it during the waxing moon, and Schleiden's wife when it is waning. I am sure she will agree so as not to undermine his theory, and besides, she sets no great store by it. The result will, of course, be that my wife will have an extra can for every fourteen cans collected by Frau Schleiden, but she will surely go to this much trouble for the sake of overcoming a preconceived opinion. This description of people's actual way of thinking shows how the moon and its influence on the earth was regarded not so very long ago. Nowadays, one might say, that people are more advanced in their scientific outlook, as they would call it, and so have gone a step beyond this, in quotes, moon dispute, and would treat as superstitious dreamers anyone who clung to the belief that the moon would have nothing to do with weather conditions and the like. Even among quite sensible people today you will find no other opinion than that the moon has an influence only on the tides, all other opinions having been superseded. If we take the standpoint of spiritual science, however, we are, of course, not obliged to swear to everything that was once part of popular belief. That would be to confuse spiritual science with superstition. Quite often today we encounter a piece of superstition which is really a misunderstood popular belief and are told that it is part of spiritual science. A superstition about the moon can indeed be seen at every street corner, for it is well known that an emblem of the moon is set up over all barbers' shops. And why is that? Because it was once generally believed that the sharpness of a razor had something to do with the waxing moon. In fact, there were times when nobody would have dared to shear a sheep while the moon was on the wane, for he would have believed that the wool would then not grow again. Only if they had intended that something should not grow any further would they have done the cutting during a waning moon. This superstition is easily disproved, for those gentlemen who shave know that their beard grows again during the waning moon too. In this realm it is easy to mock, yet on the other hand it is not at all easy to see absolutely clearly in all directions. For now we are coming to a particular question where at last we touch on spiritual science, the subject of low and high tides, generally accepted today as coming indisputably under the control of moon forces. High tide is thought to be obviously connected with the attraction of the moon, that is, when the moon reaches its meridian. And when the moon leaves the meridian, then the tide recedes to low tide. But we need to point out that in many places high and low tides occur twice, while the moon is at the meridian only once during the same period. And we could point to further facts. Many descriptions of foreign parts will show that in various places of the world high tide by no means coincides with the moon's meridian. In some places it occurs two to two and a half hours later. Science, of course, comes up with excuses to account for this and says that the high tide has been delayed. There are also certain springs which show an undeniable ebb and flow, and in some cases the spring ebbs when the sea is at the flood and vice versa. We are told that these cases, too, are examples of delayed ebb or delayed flood, in some cases so delayed as to run into the other phase. Of course, this kind of explanation can explain almost anything. There is one question which is justified to ask. How does the moon find the strength to exert such attraction on the sea? For the moon is much smaller than the earth and has only about a seventieth of the earth's power of attraction. While to set the great masses of the seas and oceans in motion would require millions of horsepower. Julius Robert Meyer made some interesting calculations on how the moon acquires its power, and it leads on to numerous other questions. 
So we can say, here is something which is regarded as scientifically irrefutable. And yet, although no objections are made to it, this statement is the most refutable of all. But there is a very significant aspect here. Although it is easy to prove that the position and influence of the moon and the course of the tides are such that it is difficult to speak of a direct influence of the one on the other, if we consider all the phenomena, one fact is clear, namely that a definite high tide occurs every day in relation to the moon's meridian, about fifty minutes later than on the previous day. So the regular sequence of high tide and low tide does therefore correspond to the course of the moon, and that is the important thing. So we face the remarkable fact that we have to say, although it is not possible to speak of the moon at its meridian as having an actual influence on the tides, we can say that the course of the moon's orbit does have a certain correspondence with the course of the tides. Now, to lead a little way into the spiritual scientific way of thinking, I would like to refer to a certain fact among Earth's phenomena which worried Goethe a lot. People know so little about what lived in this outstanding man of modern times, but anyone who, like myself, has spent many years in the study of Goethe's scientific writings and has seen his manuscripts in the Goethe-Schiller archives at Weimar makes some surprising discoveries. They will, for example, come across the preliminary notes that Goethe later condensed into a few pages as his meteorology. He pursued these inquiries with enormous diligence and care. Again and again he got his friends to collect facts and figures for him to tabulate. And the purpose of these extensive studies was to show that in different parts of the world the level of atmospheric pressure is not due to chance, but that the rise and fall of the column of quicksilver in the barometer happens in an absolutely regular way. And Goethe did in fact assemble a great deal of evidence which indicated that in the various places the rise and fall of the barometer was subject to a law that extended all round the globe. Goethe wanted to disprove the assumption that air pressure depends entirely on external influences. He knew, of course, that densification and rarefaction of the air resulting in pressure changes were generally attributed to the moon, the sun, and other cosmic factors. He wanted to prove that whatever the positions of the constellations, whatever the effects of sun and moon on the atmosphere, a constant regularity in the rise and fall of air pressure prevails all round the globe. The proof he was aiming to establish was that in the earth itself lay the causes of the rise and fall of the barometer. For this would show that the earth was not the dead body it is usually taken to be, but permeated by invisible elements from which all life flows, just as human beings have, in addition to their physical body, invisible elements which permeate them. And just as man breathes in and out, taking in the air and releasing it again, the earth too, as a living being, breathes in and out. And this in and out breathing of the earth, as manifestations of its inner life, are registered externally in the rise and fall of the mercury in the barometer. Just as one would explain the regular in and out breathing of a living human being on the basis of our inner life processes, Goethe endeavored to attribute the rise and fall of the barometer to the in and out breathing of the earth. Present-day science knows nothing, of course, about the causes of the rise and fall of the barometer. Therefore, nothing need be said about the relationship of spiritual science to external science in this respect. But what we do need to refer to is that in Goethe we have a man who is convinced that the earth is an ensouled being that behaves in ways that are comparable to the breathing process in human beings. In fact, Goethe once said to Eckermann that he regarded the phenomenon of the tides as a further expression of the inner vitality, the life processes of the earth itself. Goethe was by no means the only great thinker to arrive at this view when he directed his attention to such things with spiritual insight. 
materialistically minded people, will of course find all this ridiculous. But among people who have a free feeling for life, be it on a particular level such as this or more in general, there will always be those with ideas similar to Goethe's, for example, Leonardo da Vinci. In his excellent book, in which he sets out his comprehensive scientific views and which were the height of achievement for those times, we find him saying, and not merely, and, excuse me, and not meaning it merely as an analogy, that he actually regarded the solid rocks as the skeleton of the earth, and that the rivers, streams, and waterways can truly be seen as its blood system. And he also pointed to the fact that the tides are connected with a regular rhythm in the inner life of the earth. Kepler, too, said a similar thing, expressing it in a picture, quote, The earth can be regarded from a certain point of view as a gigantic whale, the tides being the in and out breathing of this huge creature. Close quote. How would it be if we were to compare what we said earlier with Goethe's view about the tides? Let us take the findings of spiritual science and see if we can relate our previous conclusions about the phases of the moon and the tides of and the tides to Goethe's view of the earth's inner life and breathing for this we must build on the conclusions of spiritual science which can be established only if research is pursued by spiritual scientific methods here we enter the highly hazardous realm where those who believe they are speaking from out of the precepts of modern science talk about the fantasies of spiritual science. Well, let them talk. It would be better if they were to take what is given as a stimulus. Then they would find proofs if they only looked at life more closely. In order to approach in the right way what the spiritual scientist has to say, let us consider human beings themselves in relation to the world around them. Looked at from a spiritual scientific point of view, human beings have their origin not only in the sense world, but also out of the spiritual foundations which lie behind the external physical world. So human beings are only born out of the sense world insofar as they are beings of the senses. Insofar as their body of the senses is permeated with soul and spirit, they are born from out of the soul and spirit of the cosmos. And it is only when we find the way from the human soul and spirit to the soul and spirit of the cosmos that we are enabled to see a connection between the two. In previous lectures, we have discussed various phenomena of the inner life of man. We found the soul to be not merely the nebulous something that it is for modern psychology. Among its members, we distinguished first what we call the sentient soul, In the sentient soul, the ego, though scarcely aware of itself, experiences the impulses of pleasure and pain and everything that comes to it from the outer world through the body. The ego is present within the life of the sentient soul, but as yet knows nothing of itself. Then the ego develops further and the soul advances to the stage of the rational or perceptive soul. And when the ego has carried its work on the soul further still, the rational soul gives rise to the consciousness soul. Therefore, in the structure of the human soul, we distinguish three members, sentient soul, rational or perceptive soul, and consciousness soul. The ego continues to work on these three members and brings man to greater and greater perfection. But these three soul members since they carry out their work in and through man, have to live in and be active through man's corporeal structure, the sentient soul using as its instrument the sentient body, the rational soul using the etheric body, and the consciousness soul the physical body. For our corporeal structure consists firstly of the physical body, which we have in common with everything in the mineral world. The physical body is at the same time the bearer of the consciousness soul, that is, it is not the consciousness soul itself, but the bearer of it. A higher member of our corporeal nature is one that we have in common with what is living, the plant world. 
The functions of growth, nutrition, and reproduction in the plant are active also in us. But in us they are connected with the rational or perceptive soul. Whilst the plant has an etheric body that is not permeated by the rational soul, our etheric body is also the bearer and the instrument of the rational or perceptive soul, just as the physical body is the bearer of the consciousness soul. That which forms crystals in the mineral realm is permeated in us by the consciousness soul. What exists in animals is the astral body, sentient body, and is the bearer of instincts and passions, is inwardly deepened in human beings, and is the bearer of the sentient soul. So the human soul, made up of sentient soul, rational or perceptive soul, and consciousness soul, lives in our threefold corporeality, in the sentient body, the etheric body, and the physical body, respectively. This is how it is with human beings when they are awake. During sleep it is different. Then, leaving their physical and etheric body behind in bed, they go out of them with their ego and astral body, together with those parts of their soul which permeate their etheric and physical body as rational soul and consciousness soul. Thus, during sleep, they live in a spiritual world, only they cannot perceive it, because here on earth they are obliged to perceive the surrounding world through the instruments of the physical and etheric body. As soon as they lay these instruments aside, they cannot perceive the spiritual world, for in normal life today they have no organs for doing so. Now there is something we can particularly notice about these states of waking and sleeping. Our waking life is directly connected with the course of the sun, though this is not always the case today, especially in the cities. But if we look at simple country life, where to a certain extent the relationship has been maintained between human life and nature outside, we find that people are awake whilst the sun is up and for the most part asleep during the hours of darkness. The regular alternation between waking and sleeping is in accordance with the sun's regular influence on the earth and all that springs from this. And it is not a mere picture, but an actual truth to say that in the morning the sun recalls into the physical body the astral body and ego, together with the sentient soul, the rational soul, and the consciousness soul. And that while they are awake, human beings see everything around them by means of the sun's influence. Therefore it is the sun that summons human beings, once their various members are united once more, to perceive life in our normal way. And we shall easily recognize, if we do not take a superficial view of these things, how the sun does this. Let us look at three aspects of this relationship. Now, where the soul is concerned, namely in our sentient soul, rational soul, and consciousness soul, human beings are inwardly independent. But with regard to the bearers of these soul members, the physical body, etheric body, and sentient body, they are not. These sheaths, these bearers and instruments of the three soul members, are, as we know, built up from out of the outer universe. And in order that they may serve human beings in their waking life, they are built up by way of the relationship between sun and earth. And this happens in the following way. The sentient soul lives in the sentient body, which is its instrument. And this sentient body owes its characteristics to the region that is the person's native land. People are born and bred in a particular spot on earth. And it matters whether they are born in Europe, America, or Australia. For the physical and etheric bodies it makes no difference, but it does matter directly where the sentient body is concerned. Even though human beings are gradually becoming increasingly liberated in themselves with regard to these outer effects, we still have to say, people whose roots are in their native soil, people in whom a feeling for their homeland is particularly strong, and who have not yet overcome through strength of soul the power of the physical, the hold their place of birth has on them shows itself in that if such people have to move to another region, they are not only apt to become ill-humored and morose 
but may actually fall ill. Sometimes, then, the mere prospect of returning home is enough to restore them to health, for the cause of their illness is neither in the physical body nor in the etheric body, but in their sentient body, whose moods, emotions, and desires spring directly from the environment of their native soil. Now, through developing further, which enhances their freedom, human beings will overcome the influences binding them to their native soil. Yet a comprehensive view shows that the particular spot where people are placed on the earth takes on a different quality depending on its position with regard to the sun. For the angle at which the sun's rays strike the earth varies from place to place, and we can indeed notice how very much depends on the particular spot where people live. Indeed, we can trace in certain instinctive activities, which then become absorbed into the culture, that these had something to do with the place where these people lived. Let us take two examples in the history of culture, the use of iron and the milking of certain animals for nourishment. We shall find that it is only in certain areas of Europe, Asia and Africa that these two practices developed. In other areas they were unknown in earlier times. In fact, it was European emigrants who introduced these practices. It can be clearly traced that whilst the milking of animals dates throughout Siberia from remote times, it clearly disappears in the area of the Bering Sea, and there is no record of it among the original inhabitants of America. And it is similar with iron. This shows that certain instincts, and these reside in the sentient body, are tied up with a particular region where people live, and which is dependent first and foremost on the position of the earth with regard to the sun. A second dependence concerns the etheric body. As the bearer of the rational soul, the etheric body shows itself to be dependent on its activity on the change of the seasons, that is, on the relation of sun to earth expressed in the course of the seasons. A direct proof of this can, of course, come only through spiritual science, but you can convince yourself through external facts that this statement is correct. Just think for a moment of the fact that it is only in regions where a balanced alternation of seasons occurs that the inner activity of the rational or perceptive soul can develop. This means that it is only in such regions that a bearer and instrument for the rational or perceptive soul can develop in the human etheric body. If you go to the far north, you will find that when elements of culture are brought in from elsewhere, souls have great difficulty struggling against the etheric body, which is having to live under conditions characterized by excessively long winters and short summers. The rational soul will find it impossible to forge out of the etheric body an instrument it can easily handle. If you go to the tropics, you will find that the lack of regular seasons produces a kind of apathy. Just as the forces of plant life vary in the course of the year, so do the forces in the human etheric body. They find expression in the joy of spring, the longing for summer, the melancholy of autumn, the desolation of winter. These regular changes are necessary if a proper instrument for the rational soul is to be created in the human etheric body. And again we see how the sun affects human beings through its changing relation to the earth. Let us go on to the physical body. If the consciousness soul is to work in a regular way in the physical body, human beings themselves must run their lives on similar lines to the alternation of day and night. If people never sleep, they would soon notice that their thoughts about their environment did not function properly. A regular alternation of waking and sleeping builds up our physical body so that it can be an instrument for our consciousness soul. These are the three different ways in which the sun works at building the human sheaths. But what external influences play into human beings while they are asleep, when they, are, when they have left their etheric and physical bodies behind? What might there be to influence their development from outside? 
that external science cannot tell people much about this is not surprising, for that kind of science concerns itself solely with what we can see. Only spiritual science concerns itself with what leaves the body at night and exists in the spiritual realm, though it is invisible to the world of the senses. And spiritual science shows us that whereas during the waking day the determining influences are chiefly sun influences, remarkable things happen while we are asleep. In fact, sleep certainly has its effect on our waking life in that it restores the forces that have been used up during the day. While we are asleep, dwelling in another world, we fetch ourselves a replacement for the forces that were worn down the previous day. Is it possible to point in a similar way to an external influence as we did for the daytime? Yes, it is. And what we find is in remarkable accord with the length of the phases of the moon. I'm not saying that it coincides with the moon phases or that the moon phases themselves produce the effect. All I am saying is that the course of these nighttime effects show a pattern that is comparable to the course of the phases of the moon. I will give two examples to show what I mean. External evidence is only to be found by taking an intimate look at what might be disclosed in one or another person's biography. You will often hear that people who are given to creative thoughts and the free play of imagination are not equally productive at all times. Poets, for example, if they are honest with themselves, have to admit now and then that the mood is not right and they then cease writing for the moment. We know this, but because this belongs to the hidden mysteries of life, we cannot follow its course. But people who observe this in themselves realize that the productive periods for which atmosphere, imaginative flair, and a certain inner warmth are necessary alternate in a remarkable way with periods that can be used for putting down on paper the results of this mood, these imaginative pictures, or getting them into thought form. This alternation certainly exists. People who are aware of this know that the soul has a productive period of a fortnight, and when this is over, anyone who has to do with creative thinking goes through a period of exhaustion, when the soul is like a squeezed lemon. During this empty period, however, they can work hard at sorting out what they have received. Artists and authors will not always notice this, though they will know that when the mood comes upon them, they can sing and disclaim or paint, but at other times it does not happen, because they are in an unproductive period. This alternation of periods is influenced not by daytime conditions, but is connected with the times when the soul and ego are outside the physical and etheric bodies. And then, during a period of a fortnight, productive forces are, so to speak, poured into human beings while they are independent of their physical and etheric bodies, whilst, on the other hand, no such productive forces are poured in during the following fortnight. This is the rhythm. It is a phenomenon that applies to all human beings, but is more clearly evident in the sort of people we are talking about. Much clearer still is the evidence shown by genuine spiritual scientific research. This is not the kind of research that can be undertaken whenever one chooses, but it also depends on a rhythmic pattern. I am saying something that has hardly received a mention before, but it is so. During spiritual research, one is certainly not asleep, nor does the world spirit bestow its gifts while people are asleep. It just happens to be so that the human physical body is inactive with regard to what otherwise comes from the sense world. Meditation, concentration, and so on have strengthened the researcher's faculties to such a degree that his consciousness is not blotted out when it goes forth from the physical and etheric body, and instead of sleep having to occur, the spiritual world is perceived. For the modern spiritual researcher, there are two distinctly different periods, 
one is of fourteen days, when he can make observations, feels particularly strong, and communications from the spiritual world press in upon him from all sides. Then follows the other period during which he is especially capable, thanks to the forces just received, to take hold with his thinking of the illuminations, inspirations and imaginations from the spiritual world and to work through them so that they can be given a strictly scientific form. Inspiration and the technicalities of thinking follow a rhythmic course. It is not a matter of the spiritual researcher having to record external facts. He simply sees how these periods alternate, as do full moon and new moon. We should, however, give special attention to the fact that it is solely the rhythmical alternation that parallels the change between full moon and new moon, and not that the period of inspiration coincides with the full moon and the period for working these things through with the new moon. Why should this be so? When we study our earth, we find that it has evolved out of an earlier state, just as each one of us has come in soul and spirit from a former incarnation. The earth, too, according to spiritual science, has emerged from a former planetary incarnation. But our earth has retained traces of events that occurred under earlier conditions during its previous incarnation. And these traces can be found today in the revolution of the moon round the earth. From a spiritual scientific point of view, the moon is reckoned to be part of the earth. For what is it that holds the moon to the earth and sets it revolving round it? It is the earth itself. And here spiritual science and external science are in total agreement. For external science, too, regards the moon as having been separated from the earth and having acquired the impetus which keeps it in orbit from having been once physically part of the earth. Therefore, the orbiting of the moon simply represents an earlier condition of the earth. The moon is a memento of this earlier condition. And it was the earth itself that retained in this satellite its earlier conditions because it needs to have these shining into its present condition. Can we hit on any situations that demonstrate this need? Let us consider human beings themselves and observe how, as soul beings, living in bodies, they are exposed to the course of the sun. We conclude that for normal consciousness, everything associated with the sun is restricted to the life between birth and death. This is something you can test. Ask yourselves whether what normal consciousness experiences during waking hours in its threefold dependency on native soil, the changing seasons of the year, and the alternation of day and night, is not restricted to life between birth and death. Human beings would have nothing else in their consciousness, nothing more would illuminate it, if there were only this action of the sun on the earth, and only this relation between sun and earth. That which plays over from one incarnation to the next and appears again and again in a new life must be looked for in the sole spiritual element which penetrates the human bodily sheaths and during sleep passes as astral body and ego out of these sheaths. At death also these leave the body and reappear in a new form in the person's next incarnation. Here there is a rhythm which directs our attention to a rhythm similar to that of the moon. If we look at human evolution, we see that what human beings now experience in the work of the ego on the sentient soul, rational soul and consciousness soul began for the first time on earth and happens solely under the conditions prevailing between earth and sun. But the earth's relation to the moon is one that it has retained from earlier conditions in its own evolution. Our present phase of evolution through sentient soul, rational soul and consciousness soul, however, points to a period during which the bearers of these soul members, the physical body, etheric body and astral body, were being prepared. 
And just as the action of the sun is still necessary for the proper development of these three bearers, the moon forces had in former times to work on human beings so that these bearers could go through their preparatory stages. Just as today the moon forces work in rhythmic progression and our own inner life also proceeds rhythmically, the moon forces were once in harmony with human beings themselves, preparing them to be what they are today. Likewise, the earth, during its moon condition, prepared our present earth. So we can say that the lower nature of human beings, out of which the sentient soul, rational soul and consciousness soul have been built up, points back to the former earth conditions which the earth has preserved in what we see as the moon orbiting the earth. And we see that the inner human being, passing from one incarnation to the next, must have a rhythm that corresponds to the moon. For in earlier stages of earth evolution, it was not our present temporary body that was connected with the moon, but the inner forces that work on these bodily members. Just as today it is our external bodily nature that is connected with the sun. The earth has preserved in the moon something of its earlier conditions, and human beings also in their inner eternal part have retained something of earlier conditions. And it is precisely in their inner being that they are developing those higher qualities to a level of inner dependence which formerly came to them as an external influence. What we need to emphasize is that human beings grow out of these external influences, becoming more independent all the time. For example, they can sleep by day and stay awake by night. Nevertheless, they still have to maintain within them the sun's rhythm and keep to the alternation of sleeping and waking. In earlier times, our inner day and night was totally in accordance with the sun's day and night. Human beings were then more closely bound to their native soil. It is precisely through breaking free of the rhythm that bound them that they became independent and free. For although they retain the rhythm, they are no longer dependent on the outer world. It is as if we had a 24-hour clock and set it so that it no longer corresponds with the time outside. For example, when it is twelve o'clock outside, our clock does not say twelve o'clock. So that although the clock follows a twenty-four hour rhythm, the time it shows is its own and not that of the sun. This is how human beings attain inner freedom, by making the external rhythm into an inner one. They liberated themselves a long time ago from the rhythm which connected their inner being with the moon. This is why we needed to emphasize that although human beings live through the phases of the moon inwardly, these experiences are not caused by the moon in the sky. The course of the moon shows a similar rhythm because human beings have retained the rhythm inwardly, though outwardly they have made themselves free and independent of it. In the same way as we have established the fact that human beings are living beings, We must also see the earth as a living being, but as it shows us only its physical body with no evident signs of life, feeling, or knowledge, this makes it seem more like the moon. Now, we can understand why we cannot, not even from the point of view of external facts, speak of a direct influence of the moon on the tides, but can only say that the ebb and flow of the tides correspond in their rhythm to the course of the moon. But we cannot speak of a direct external influence of the moon because the moon really does not cause the changing tides. The tides as well as the course of the moon are caused by deeper spiritual forces in the living earth. The moon's rotation and the tides correspond to one another, but they have just as little direct dependency one upon another as there is a direct dependency between the present moon and the rhythms occurring in the activities of those people who are creative and those who are clairvoyant. So we see what a wonderfully clarifying light spiritual science throws on these matters. The tides correspond to an inner process taking place in our earth 
that produces not only the tides in the sea, but also the revolution of the moon. They correspond with one another in the same way as the progress of the clock corresponds to the progress of the sun, although no one would try to say that the sun moves the clock's hands. These are correspondences where the one does not bring the other about, but they both originate from the same cause. And if you take these findings of spiritual science and go through all the books where the phenomena of moon, earth, and tides are recorded, you will find the true relationship between the moon and the earth on the one hand and the moon and the human being on the other. You can easily see that if people fail to maintain their independence and their state of full consciousness is reduced to a less conscious or unconscious condition, they regress to earlier stages of evolution. Human beings have advanced from unconsciousness to their present state of consciousness, from their earlier direct dependence on the moon and its influence to their present independence from it and their dependence on the sun. Because human beings were once directly dependent on the moon, it follows that if their consciousness is damped down, its functioning will conform to the course of the moon. A characteristic of mediums is that their actual ego consciousness is lowered to the extent where they revert back to an earlier stage of evolution, and the one-time influence of the moon makes itself felt in them. It is similar in certain cases of illness when the consciousness is lowered. If you bear in mind these principles of spiritual science, you will be well able to understand these phenomena. The evidence for what spiritual science has to say can be found in all aspects of life. One thing more. When human beings are to be born again on earth, then after their sojourn in the spiritual world between death and a new birth, during the embryonic period, they pass through conditions that recall an earlier stage on earth. This embryonic period is still reckoned by science as covering ten lunar months. There is a rhythm taking place here which runs its course through ten successive moon periods. And we see that during the time before we see the light of day, human development takes place in conditions we can explain only by referring to the rhythm of the moon. We see again how in the moon and its rhythm the earth has preserved what it went through itself before it reached its earth stage. And when today we study human development during the embryonic period, we see that each week, that is each phase of the moon, during the ten lunar months corresponds to a particular condition in the development of the embryo. Here indeed we see evidence of human beings having maintained what we call the moon rhythm. And there are many more phenomena connected with the human embryonic period before human beings emerge into the light of day, which are of course not caused by the moon and do not coincide with the moon phases, but reflect the same rhythm because they go back to primary causes that were present while the earth was passing through earlier conditions of existence. I have been throwing light on a subject which cannot be further illuminated publicly. Thoughtful people will see that here a perspective is opening into realms of life where spiritual science can indeed indicate a direction that is immensely illuminating with regard to a part of the human being that is hidden from external sunlight and lies behind it. These are realms which have to be explored by a light different from the light of knowledge we have acquired through the light of the sun, namely by faculties which are not dependent on the service rendered by the sentient, etheric and physical bodies under the influence of the sun. The clairvoyant capacity makes itself independent of these three bodies. It can enter deeply into the core of things, see into the spiritual world and open up a capacity to know what lies behind external sunlight and yet is no less full of light and illumination. We have been able to see what a great number of stimulating insights spiritual science is able to open up. But I have to emphasize that on the question of the moon 
even more intimate light of a spiritual scientific kind is needed if we are to get to the heart of the matter. In conclusion, a poem occurs to me by the German poet and lyricist Wilhelm Müller, a poem of which only the last verse is of interest to us. The moon is being addressed, and many intimate words have been exchanged between a human being and the moon. And then, following some quite remarkable things that have been said to the moon, comes the verse, quote, This little song, an evening round, a wanderer sings in full moonshine. Those who read it by candlelight will always fail to get it right, childishly simple though it is. Quote. This is the kind of way we should take what spiritual science has to say, as shown in our treatment of the moon and its significance for human life. We could put it this way. The song of spiritual science about the moon can indeed be sung only if we have some understanding of the more intimate ideas of spiritual science. People who try to read the song by candlelight, by which is meant the telescope, and employ photographs of the moon for so-called research, these people will hardly understand our song. But those who are ready to go even a little way into what life can tell us in all its aspects will have to admit that it is not so difficult to understand after all. Anyone who endeavors to understand the song that spiritual science sings about the moon, not by the candlelight of the telescope, but by the living light of the spirit, which shines even when all sense impressions are absent, will find that this song about the moon, and therefore about an important aspect of life, is really quite easy, even if not childishly easy. That is the end of Lecture 9 and the end of Volume 1 of Transforming the Soul by Rudolf Steiner.